Please take your Bibles and turn to the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to begin reading with verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregations of the saints. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I don't know if you noticed that odd sound that rippled through the congregation when I read verses 34 and 35, but I I think it was some people tightening their seatbelts. Uh, it, was, it was odd in the first service when I read those verses. There was a palpable sense of tension that uh, you, you, could, you could sense it all the way up, uh, up here. But let me encourage you to stay put for a while. Don't go into orbit yet. We will uh, take time, hopefully, to, uh, to understand that, that passage. What this is is a, a, a wonderful peek into, the, into a first century church, their worship service. I don't think I'd want to transport everything from the early church into our churches because uh, they had a lot of the same problems that we had. They, they struggled with heresy and bigotry and male chauvinism and, and sexual immorality. And, and I, don't, I don't think we would want to recapture totally the spirit of these, uh, of these churches. You have to realize that most of the letters that were written to the churches were written to correct certain abuses that uh, were observable there. And although those abuses are still with us, we would like to correct those. Dorothy Sayers says, the three humiliations of Christ are his death and his burial and his church. And I think sometimes we are a a terrible embarrassment to our Lord. The first century church was and, and we are. But what I would like to recapture is the spirit of worship that prevailed in the church. There was a wonderful freedom. Uh, There was form 
there, but there was also freedom and, and informality. In the first place, they worshipped in homes. They didn't worship in church buildings. You have to understand that a building is not a church. You are the church. I don't know if you've noticed our sign out in front. It does not say Cold Community Church. It says Cold Community Church meets here. This happens to be the place where we meet. But this building is not the church. You are. I have a friend who once was asked where his church was. The question, of course, was what is the location of your church? But his answer was, let's see, it's Monday morning. My church is teaching school. It's directing traffic. It's building houses. See, the church is not the place where we meet. The church is the people who, who meet there, and the church can meet anywhere. As a matter of fact, in the first two and a half centuries of, of the church, they had no buildings as such. They met in homes. The church in Corinth apparently met in Gaius' house. Gaius was a wealthy Roman nobleman. He must have had a house up on the side of the Acro-Corinth, the, the hill just to the south of Corinth. That's where most of the mansions and the, the affluent people lived Gaius' house was, was evidently large enough to accommodate the church at that time, and that's where they gathered. If you ever visit Caesarea, they'll, they'll point out to you Peter's house. They're almost certain that it's Peter's house. They found Christian graffiti on the walls. But the amazing thing about oh, another reason that they think it's Peter's house is because there's a Byzantine church that's built right over the top of it. Most of those churches were, were built in order to commemorate some very important place in church history. So they're almost certain this was Peter's house. And the interesting thing about it is that the living room was expanded uh, ever so often. The walls were pushed back. New foundations were poured because the church grew. And as the church grew, Peter's house grew. That's, that's where they met and that's where they worshipped. such a a wonderful informality about house churches. That's why we're so uh, concerned about everyone getting involved in one of our many churches, our, our growth groups, where you have an opportunity to use your gifts. And, and everyone can be involved, and there's a, a, a greater sense of account accountability there. A wonderful informality. Back in my young life days, I, I used to remember meetings where kids would be sprawled all over the floor, five or six sitting on the same couch. And it's that kind of spirit, I think, that, that prevailed uh, in the early church. The other thing that you notice from this passage is that apparently there was no clergy. Uh, you have to remember, even our Lord was a layman. He wasn't a clergyman. He wasn't a Levite. And uh, the people who participated in the first century church were not professional Christians. They, they were what we would call today the laity. Everyone got, got involved. Someone once described me as six days invisible and on the seventh day incomprehensible. And that's not a bad description of, uh, of a preacher, but uh, what I would rather be is seven days invisible. I would much rather see the saints engaged in the ministry. My job and the job of the other teachers and shepherds here in the church is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And you see that spirit in the early church. Everyone participated. The worship was very free-flowing. Paul said, if anybody has a hymn, the actual word is a psalm. Apparently, they, they, they sang the psalms, the, word, uh, the Greek word for psalm, 
signifies a poem that's sung to the accompaniment of uh, some sort of an instrument. So they had instruments there, and, and they uh, they played music and they sang music, but it's very spontaneous. They had no worship leader. Sorry about that, Bill. You'd have to go out and get a real job. Uh, they uh, someone would stand up and they just start singing a song, or a song would emerge out of the group. Uh, Murray Gustafson, one of our elders, so frequently will do that. We'll be sitting in a meeting, and Murray will just start singing. And there's something about that, that singing that softens our, our hearts. Music does have the ability to, uh, to, to, to calm our restlessness and quiet our hearts and, and focus our attention again on the Lord and give us an appetite uh, for him. I was in a meeting recently where there were some difficult decisions that had to be made and and I was really concerned about the meeting and we opened the meeting with a period of, of, of worship and I, I found my heart softening and I found myself centering more and more upon the Lord. Luther said the devil hates music because it drives the evil spirits from us. It's such an essential part of our, uh, of our worship. And then there was a, a time of instruction. Paul says... Uh, you instructed one another. Uh, the, the instruction, again, was generated within the body. There was no one person who was considered the teacher. As you know from, from chapter 12, there is the gift of teaching, that wonderful capacity to be able to impart the truth to others that, that comes from the Spirit of God. It's supernaturally bestowed, has nothing to do with natural gifts. It's the spiritual ability to teach. And there were many in that, in that gathering that were able to, to teach and encourage and, and instruct people and teach them how to heal a hurting marriage and how to suffer successfully and how to deal with difficult personalities and, and how to face into controlling habits and, and uh, issues in their lives over which they were troubled and uh, stubborn habits that they, they couldn't deal with. They would address these issues in their, in, in their teaching. But you see, it would come from, from within the group. And uh, then Paul says there would be a prophecy, or a revelation is the way he puts it here. That term is equivalent to, uh, to prophecy, as we'll see later in, in the passage. You see, the early church did not have the New Testament as we have it today. This book, 1 Corinthians, was written about A.D. 56. And uh, perhaps the Gospel of Mark. And uh, maybe the 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Galatians, perhaps, were written at this time. But none of the other New Testaments uh, books were in circulation. They hadn't been collected then into the body of literature that we call the New Testament. So God spoke through the prophets. That's why Paul says uh, the New Testament is built upon the apostles and the prophets. The apostles were those that were specially designated by our Lord to go out and plant churches and teach with authority in his name. But there are also prophets, men and women, within the church who received direct revelation and transmitted that revelation to others in, in uh, in that assembly. And uh, then there were those, as we'll see in a moment, that had the gift of discernment. They would listen to what the prophets had to say and evaluate their, uh, their teaching to determine if it was true to the, to the truth. And then someone would stand and they would speak in the tongue. 
And uh, as, as I understand that term, it's the supernatural ability to speak in a language that you could not otherwise know. It was an authenticating gift. The, the prophets in the Old Testament predicted that, that, that when the Messiah came, there would be an outbreak of, uh, of, of speaking in, in foreign languages, and that would be a sign of the Messianic era. And we know from 1 Corinthians uh, 14, from the earlier section of this chapter, that there were inquirers in the church, those that were not yet believers. And there were, uh, there were, many of those were Jewish uh, unbelievers. They had come out of the synagogue and they were simply investigating the Christian faith. And, and as men and women would speak in tongues, those tongues would authenticate the, uh, the, the coming of Christ and establish that he was indeed the Messiah and their hearts would be drawn toward God. And then there'd be someone else that would stand and, and they would interpret, they would translate that tongue because it would, it, would be, uh, it would be incomprehensible to the people that were gathered there. They wouldn't understand it. And, and they would hear someone extolling the mighty works of God but in a language that they were unfamiliar with. And uh, the, the, the message... The, the praise that was uttered to God would be explained to the rest of the congregation so, so all could, uh, uh, could enter in. And uh, what, what you see in all of this is a, a wonderful freedom and relaxed uh, informality. Back in the 60s, it was my privilege to be a part of a fellowship that was known as Peninsula Bible Church and. Uh, on Sunday night, we had what was called a body life service. It gained that name because it was an opportunity for the body to express the life of Christ. All the limbs and all the members uh, of Christ had a chance to, to function, and there was great uh, interaction. It happened during the Jesus movement, and we had all kinds of people there, young and old, very traditional people in coats and ties, and, and young men and women with long hair and, and uh uh, uh, all wigged out and hippie clothes and whatnot. They used to bring their dogs to church. Their dogs would sit next to them. And, and at one point, we, uh, we, we actually, uh, when we would pass the offering plate, we, we would tell the congregation, if you're in need, take out. And, and if God has blessed you this year, then, uh, this week, then, then put something into the uh, offering plate. I, I mentioned that now to our elders, and they all blanch, but... But this was just a wonderful uh, expression of the life of, of the body, a wonderful time of sharing and giving. Uh, John Fisher, wrote a, who was one of our worship leaders at that time, whom some of you know, he was here six months or so ago, wrote a song at that time, uh, Long Hairs, had a line in it, Long Hair, Short Hair, Some Coats and Ties, Looking Past the Hair and Straight into the Eyes. It didn't matter who you are or where you came from or what your culture was. Everyone felt free to enter in and, and share the gifts that God had, had given to them. Now, that's the kind of freedom that we would love to see here. It's very difficult to maintain in a congregation this size. It's, it's best done in, in small groups. But still, I'd like for all of us to do some thinking about how we can interject that element of freedom into our worship service. One of the cards that I received for my 60th birthday, I, I so much appreciated your expressions of love for me, but one that really touched my heart was, a, was a, from a dear friend of mine, a man that I genuinely love, who told me that, that several years ago, 
he was uh, sitting over there in, on the left-hand side where he always sits, and it suddenly dawned on him that he couldn't be good enough to please God. He long ago had come to the conclusion that he was disqualified, that God would never accept him. His past was, the sins of his past were too grave, too serious for God to overlook. And something that was said in the passage that day touched his heart, and he, and he realized that he didn't have to be good, that Christ had died for those sins, and uh, that God accepted him just as he is. And he said, I had the, the wildest urge to just stand up and say, Hallelujah, right in the middle of the service. And I wanted to write him back and say, Why in the world didn't you do it? That would have been wonderful. I was at a meeting once, uh, a Bible study, years and years ago, and there was a young woman there who, uh, who had just found Christ the, the week before, and she came to that, that meeting, and uh, the teacher for that day was teaching through Romans 6, and he said something that really touched her heart, and she hadn't been a Christian long enough to learn all the holy words that, that, that we know, like hallelujah and praise the Lord, and she just shouted, whoopee, she said. <laughs> And I, I thought, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I wish somehow we could regenerate that, uh, that spirit uh, within the church. It's, as Paul puts it, with all the saints that we know all the dimensions of the love of God. I, I, I cannot plumb the depths of God's love. No individual here can. But it's with all the saints that we come to comprehend all that God is to us. Now, there was freedom. There, but there was also form. Uh, this was not unregulated freedom. Uh, Paul points out that there needs to be order, there needs to be decorum, needs to be beauty about the service, because that's the way God is. It's, uh, order and beauty is rooted in the character of God. He cares about uh, about uh, things that that impart beauty to our lives. Uh, it's important to him that a service like this one or any service be a friendly place where there is a sense of decency and decorum and not that everyone is uptight about mistakes, mistakes don't matter, or that everything has to be so slick that it's unctuous. That, that's not the point. But there ought to be beauty about our, our gatherings. Uh, I remember uh, reading through John one time, and I came to John 6. And John pointed out that when Jesus uh, was feeding the 5,000 and he had the people sit down before he fed them, that uh, there was much grass in that place. And for the first time, that phrase struck me. I thought, how odd. You know, it just seemed like a throwaway line. There's much grass in that place. But then I remembered in the ancient Near East, there wasn't much grass. Grass was a rare commodity. And our Lord took the time to find a place that was soft and luxuriant, where people could stretch out on, on the grass. It was a friendly place. It was a place of, of beauty. And uh, I think that's what our services ought to be, not over-regulated, not over-controlled. But there is a sense of proper decorum, and discipline, and, and regulation that, uh, that is extremely important. And what he does here is pick out two, two areas in which they needed uh, some help. I think this was a church that was very disorderly. Um, we're in verse 20, oh, pardon me, 33. In talking, in referring back to the character of God, he says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The word for disorder here 
is a word for utter chaos. It's used for riots in the New Testament. It's used for, for revolutions. Jesus said in Luke there will be wars and revolutions. Uh, it's, uh, it's a word for extreme disorder. And I think that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were so glad to be, to be set free. They're so much enjoying their freedom in Christ that they were losing control of, of the meeting. And in particular, two areas were, were troublesome. One was tongues and the other was prophecy. And evidently, there was an unregulated babble that was going on. People were, were standing up, and they were talking, and they were, some of them were talking too long, and, and there was a lot of chatter that was going on within the congregation, and so Paul is concerned about that disorder, and he speaks to it. He says in verse 27, they never make these verse notations large enough for me to see them. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. Now, I don't know if he's saying here that there should be only two or three expressions of tongues in a gathering. Whatever you, th- you feel about tongues today, it's very clear that they did speak in tongues in the early church, and this was an area that needed some correction. What he's saying, I think, is that let's control the number of people that speak in tongues. That has some value, as, as he tells us earlier in the passage, for those who are unbelievers. But it doesn't necessarily edify the church. So let two or three speak, and then let someone interpret. Let someone translate. And if there's no translator, then let that uh, person who has the gift of tongues remain quiet. And just speak to himself. Just praise, praise God and do so quietly in, in, in his or her uh, heart, uh, and then he goes on uh, to to refer to uh, uh, to prophets, verse uh, twenty nine. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. Now again, the gift of prophecy is the ability to receive direct revelation from God. Deuteronomy eighteen uh, explains that uh, that gift. Uh, Moses said, God will raise up someone like, like me. Someone to whom God spoke face to face. God didn't speak to Moses through dreams and visions. He spoke face to face with God. Uh, with God, and, uh, Or with Moses. And Paul is saying, those of you that have that gift, those to whom God is speaking directly, admonish the church, correct the church, speak to the church, but... Uh, uh, just let it be two or three, and, and the others must weigh the statements that, uh, that are made. And if you're speaking and someone else has a revelation, sit down and let this other prophet get up and speak. Uh, some people don't know when to, when to stop talking. They, they have poor terminal facilities, and uh, they need to learn to, to be quiet and sit down and let someone else share. Don't dominate the meeting, he's saying. And then it's necessary to, to discern what's being said and to weigh carefully the words that are being, being spoken. Now, uh, today, I don't think there are any prophets as such in, in the church, but I think the necessity of discernment is just as significant, just as important. I have said over and over again that those of us who teach up here are not the authority. The word of God is the authority. The reason we, we do what we call expository teaching is because we want to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Now, we all come with our biases and prejudices and, 
and uh, sometimes we impose upon the text some meaning that, that's not there. But as much as possible, we try to let the text speak for itself. It is more memorable. You can go back to the passage and you can look at it for yourself. And it has more authority because it's not my idea of where reality lies. It's, it's what the apostles are saying to us. And their words are the very words of God, as Paul puts it in this, uh, in this uh, same, same passage. Therefore, it's incumbent on you when you go home to think about what's said here and don't take anybody's word for anything unless you see it in the text. Uh, Paul says, for example, of the people in Berea. This was a church that Paul founded. He says, you, he wrote, wrote back to them and he said, you, you folks are, are more noble, more spiritually noble than the people up in Thessalonica. It's another city that was up in Macedonia northern part of Greece, another church that Paul founded. You're more noble than those people because, he said, you search the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures, the only scriptures they had, you search the scriptures to determine if those things are so. Now, what does the those things refer to? Well, nothing uh, less than the teachings of the apostle Paul. See what Paul is saying? The people in Berea, by the way, that's why there are so many churches that are named Berean churches, because they want to think of themselves as spiritually noble. And I hope you do, too. Uh, Paul says they're more noble in, in Berea. The people there were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to determine if what I taught them is true. This is an apostle speaking. In other words, if I say anything that contradicts what what God has already said, don't believe me. See? And these are the words of, of an inspired apostle. Well, how much more uh, is that true of the rest of us who are anything but inspired? Whatever we teach, you must go home and determine if those things are true. It's what we're saying coincident with what Scripture has already said. Now, that was one way in which the, the, Paul wants to regulate the church. He wants tongues to be controlled and he wants the prophets uh, to be controlled. And, and as a result of uh, this regulation and the order and the, and the beauty of the service, people would be instructed and challenged and, and encouraged and, and comforted. Now we come to verses 34 and 35. And uh, this uh, section appears in the section that has to do with the regulation of church order. So it fits quite normally into Paul's argument. Let me read it again, in case you missed it the first time. <laughs> Women should remain silent in the churches. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, this is, this is the word for absolute silence. There's another word in the New Testament that means quiet in the sense of being tranquil. But this is not that word. The only other place Paul uses this word is in Romans when he refers to the gospel that was hidden in the Old Testament about which the prophets were silent. So it means absolute silence, not one peep. Well, you can see we, we, we have already transgressed because we had women pray. And uh, we had uh, women speak. And some of you have been talking to one another out there. I heard you <laughs> chattering. 
Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. But must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. You say, ask my husband at home? He doesn't know anything. For it is disgraceful. Uh, That's the word that really means indecorous. It, it, It jars our sensitivities. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now what in the world are we going to do with a passage like this? Some of you are thinking it's exactly what I thought. Paul is just a a legalistic, hung-up Jewish rabbi. And uh, now he is suppressing the life of of the church. Well, one of the real problems with this verse is if we take it at face value, that women can't say anything in the church, Paul contradicts himself. Because, as you recall, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said that it is perfectly all right for women to prophesy and to pray in the church. And prophecy is one of the highest gifts. It's in the highest order of gifts. And we know from the Old Testament that there were women like Huldah and and Miriam and uh, Deborah and Isaiah's uh, unnamed wife who were prophets. By the way, not prophetesses. There's no such word. Prophets. Incidentally, there's no word like deaconess either. That, the word in the New Testament is simply deacon, and both men and women can be deacons. I always think of deaconette when they say deaconesses. So, and we know that in the assembly of Israel, women had a, a powerful influence upon uh, God's people. They ministered to one another. They, prof- they prophesied. And, and there were New Testament prophets. Agabus had uh, several daughters who are described as as prophets. Well, uh, if these women are prophets, certainly they spoke up. So what can we say? And and Paul grants them permission to speak up in 1 Corinthians 11, encourages them to speak up, and here he says all can prophesy, and it's not specified that only men can. So what can we say about this passage? Well, let me take a couple of shots at it. These are just some things for you to think about, okay? Okay. One possibility is that Paul's concern here has to do primarily with disorder in the church. Let me give you a little bit of cultural background, historical background. In the synagogues of that day, there was a barrier right down the middle of the congregation, a lattice-like affair that, that permitted sound to transfer but not sight. You couldn't see the other side. The women would all be sitting over here. All of our wives and all the other women would be over here, and all the men would be over here. The men could participate. They could speak. They could pray. They could read the scriptures, they can uh, give the the lesson for the day. The women were commanded to be silent. They couldn't interact at all with the men. Now, when Christ came, the barrier literally came down. Not only the wall between Jew and Gentile, but the wall between men and women. As Paul puts it in Galatians There is no male or female. Not that there aren't differences. The differences still remain, but the differences don't make any difference. That's Paul's point. And when the church began to gather in in homes, women sat with the men, and they, they understood they had spiritual gifts as well as the men, and they could prophesy, and they could instruct, and they could pray, and they could be a vital part of what was going on in that assembly. And apparently what was happening is, they, 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 they were going a little too far. 
they, they, they were talking too much. As a matter of fact, the word that's used for speak here, they are not allowed to speak, in classical Greek was used for chatter. And some have suggested that uh, while some, uh, you know, one of their husbands is speaking over here, one would give the elbow, another, one woman give an elbow to another. Do you hear what he's saying? Can you believe that he really thinks that about that passage? Or they were asking questions back and forth. You know, what, what does he mean? And that's why Paul would say, if you have questions, ask, ask at home. They would be a spur to men, of course, to, uh, to increase their own knowledge of, of the word. But many commentators see that the problem here was disorder in the church. And Paul is not insisting that women keep silent, but just that they, that they maintain the order of the assembly. Now, Chris Riddell has a very helpful illustration. He said it's like a classroom that's very uh, disorderly, dis- you know, a lot of disruption. And you, the teacher's out of the classroom. I re- what, that's what always happens. I remember the teacher would walk out in the classroom and erupt into sound and fury and kids were throwing chalk. And, and she would walk back into the classroom and she'd say, all right, be quiet. Everyone be silent. And then she'd say, all right, Mary, you can talk. And that may be what Paul is doing here. He's saying, all right, let's maintain order in the church. It's all right for women to pray or to prophesy or to speak. But it should be done in keeping with the beauty and and the order that God wants to maintain. Now, uh, let me tell you my, uh, this is an opinion, okay? Please understand, that's all this is. This is an opinion. I have a little different way of looking at it. I think it's a quote. Paul is in the habit in 1 Corinthians of quoting something that's said by the Corinthians without any attribution. There's no introduction. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't describe the, uh, the quote to anyone. He just simply quotes what they were saying and then corrects it or adds to it or conditions it. Remember in chapter 6 and chapter 10, Paul said uh, he quotes the Corinthians who were saying, uh, uh, all things are lawful for us. And Paul says, well, that, that's right, but that's not completely right. And then he corrects that misconception. In chapter 15, he quotes a Greek quote, a poet, Menander, without attributing the quote to anyone. I and mean, we know it's a quote because we have the poem. Uh, good uh, good uh, manners are corrupted by bad uh, companions. He just quotes Menander without mentioning that he's quoting. You wouldn't know that. From the text, and of course, in the original manuscript, there were no uh, no grammatical marks at all, no punctuation. I think this is a quote, and I think it's probably a quote from the traditional Jewish segment of the church in Corinth. So you could put a quotation mark at the very beginning of verse 34: "Women should remain silent in the churches; they're not allowed to speak." This may be someone who was part of the Cephas party, Peter's, uh, those that thought they were followers of Peter, although Peter, of course, would not agree with them, who were uh, coming out of a synagogue background, who had a very traditional view of worship, and they were saying women should not speak at all in the church. Now, let me tell you two reasons why I think that's true, not only because Paul is in the habit of quoting, but there are two important Uh, grammatical elements that need to be considered. In verse 36, although it does not occur in the translations, there's a little particle here that one translation translates what? Sort of 
note of surprise. What? Did the word originate from you? Grammarians tell us that that particle, when it's accented the way it happens to be accented in the text, always indicates some very strong contrast. Paul is reacting to this idea that, that women must be silent in the church. The second point that needs to be considered is that the pronoun you, in verse uh, 36, did the word of God originate with you? And the little adjective in the next uh, sentence, or are you the only people it has reached, that adjective only, are both masculine. Now, we don't, we don't use gender much in English, but gender is very important in the language that Paul was using. And uh, you would expect Paul to use a feminine pronoun. If he is rebuking the women who are speaking out in the church, he would have said, what, did the word of God originate from you, women? He doesn't. He uses a masculine, which indicates, I believe, that he's speaking to the people that were, uh, who, who were making this statement, that women ought to be silent in the church. They have no business speaking up. We don't want to hear their prophecies. And Paul is saying, what? Listen, gentlemen, did the word of God originate with you? Can't it also originate with women? See? And you think back through the Old Testament, and you read the Proverbs, and here is a mother teaching her son, who is about to become a king, what life is all about. And you read about people like Miriam and Huldah and Deborah and others, and you find these are women whom God has taught and graced and who are used of God to teach men. And I think Paul is rebuking this idea that women don't have anything to teach us, gentlemen. And I want you women to know that we honor you, we value you highly. We do not think of you as disciplettes or subsets of men or little women. Mary was commended because she sat at, the face of, uh, sat at the feet of Jesus. And you women that are taught of God, who sit at his feet, we want to hear from you. And I think that's what Paul is saying. The word doesn't originate with men. It can also originate with women. And we want you to know that your gifts here are highly prized. And we want you to express those gifts in the power of of the Holy Spirit. You are our co-laborers in the gospel. Now, just quickly, I've got to uh, wrap this, uh, this passage up. You've often wondered, why in the world should we go to church? Paul gives us uh, the reason here. He says the purpose is that we might be strengthened. Verse uh, 26, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Simply the word for edification or for building up. And that's broken down into two parts in verse 31. You can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed. That's the word which in other places in the New Testament is translated disciple, instructed, and encouraged. There are two elements, I think, that strengthen the church. One is uh, instruction. That's why we uh, exposit the scriptures, as I said. We want you to know the word, but more importantly, the goal of our instruction here is not knowing. You know, it's not just gathering data about God. 
Nor is it even believing, although that's extremely important. It's beholding. As the hymn puts it, beyond the sacred page, we see the Lord. When you come in here, we want you to to see God as you've never seen him before. and Go away with a a deeper understanding, a more more mature understanding of who he is and what he has done for you. Paul uh, was highly critical of of people, some people to whom Timothy was ministering. And and he says to Timothy, his uh, his young friend, flee youthful lusts. And we often interpret that phrase to refer to sexual lusts, and it certainly can be used that way. But in the context of that passage, what Paul is talking about is the youthful lust to argue and to debate and to hold theories up into the air, up in the air, and, and not let them touch uh, reality. And he says, rather pursue after righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, truth, love. See, this, this is what we must do when we gather. We must hear the word, but not just to get information about God, but rather to see him as we've never seen him uh, before and to pursue after righteousness. And sometimes when we see him, it is devastating to our souls. Like Isaiah, when we see the Lord high and lifted up, we see ourselves for what we really are, and our sin decimates us. And that's why we need encouragement. That's why we can't just have teaching. We need comfort as well. Some of you come in here and you have just heard from your spouse that he or she no longer has the energy to maintain the relationship and it's over and your hearts are broken. Some of you come in here just having discovered a pot pipe in your in your high school, uh, uh, one of your high school kids' uh, bedroom uh, drawers and you're devastated by that some of you have just discovered that your child will will never be normal uh, again uh, some of you have just heard this week from your boss that you have to clean out your desk and and you've just been destroyed and and so we cannot just just face you into the hard things of life without without bringing comfort to you. Sometimes, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, I've, I've gone into churches and I, I just felt utterly beat up. All they did was talk to me about my sin and they did nothing to, to grace me, nothing to encourage me, nothing to, to comfort me. I have a friend who said that you know, surgeons do not open up their, their patients and then walk out of the room. You can't do that. People come in with hurts. And people begin to experience hurt as they're here and as they hear the word of God taught. And so they need that word of encouragement and, and comfort and grace that always accompanies the, the exposure of our sin. If you ever go to Israel and you visit the Dome of the Book, that's the shrine in which the, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are preserved. And around the uh, main part of the, uh, of the dome is a facsimile of, of the book of Isaiah, one of the earliest of the manuscripts that they found. They found an almost complete manuscript of Isaiah dating from uh, about 200 B.C. And all of it is a facsimile except one panel, which is an original. And uh, it's a section of Isaiah 40. And as you read down that chapter, it starts out, this is God speaking, comfort. Comfort, my people. Speak comfortably 
to Israel. And I remember standing there and being deeply impacted by that, just remembering that out of all of Isaiah, this was God's word to comfort his people. Now, this is what we want for you. I, uh, I very often uh, describe the Christian life in terms of a, of a sandwich. Most of you have heard this at one time or another. The top layer of the sandwich are these incredible demands that God places upon us. Be holy because I am holy. That's a statement from the Old Testament, which is reiterated in, in the New. God's demands are not lessened to any extent in the New Testament. Be holy because I am holy. All of us need to aspire to the righteousness of of Christ. The middle layer is God's empowerment, his enablement. He doesn't demand without, without giving us the resources that we need to comply. So there is a, there's a wonderful empowering in order to, to grow toward the, the measure of the fullness of Christ. And then underneath, the third layer is this, what I call the safety net, this incredible ongoing forgiveness of Christ, that no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how far we go, we cannot outsend the grace of God. We are loved and accepted. He believes in us. He cares for us regardless of what we do. And those three elements have to always be presented in any, uh, any gathering of God's people. I want to leave you with a story. I was reading a, a section from... Uh, George uh, MacDonald's book called The Flight of of the Shadow. It's about a young woman by the name of uh, of Barbara uh, Witchett, whose uncle was a diamond merchant. And he used to take uh, these these stones out every day and look at them and count them, and she could hardly keep her eyes off of them. But he had told her to stay away from his stones. And one day her curiosity got, got the best of her, and she opened the drawer and she took out the stones and she began to play with them and then she put them back and then suddenly she was smitten with in, in her conscience she was a very sensitive little little girl and uh, she didn't know what to do she was so grieved over her sin that she had violated her uncle's trust and so she she went to him finally and she confessed her sin and she said to her uncle please uncle will you kill me she uh, just could not endure her, her guilt. And uh, his uncle, or her uncle said to her, Yes, yes, I will kill you. This way, this way, he said. And he gathered her into his arms, and he covered her face with kisses. And I thought, that's exactly what we want to do when people walk out of this door. We want them to know that they have been killed by the kisses of God. That no matter how far short of the glory of God they have fallen this week, they are comforted by the knowledge that he loves them and he cares for them and he will strengthen them for another try. He's the God of another and a better chance. Let's pray.